Who doesn't like a good success story? Classical Christian education is on the rise and the impact is far reaching across the United States and literally around the world. The growth of startup schools, five day a week brick and mortar schools, hybrid and collaborative schools, as well as home schools, not to mention schools in almost every setting from rural countryside to inner city. My guest today is part of a team serving under-resourced youth in our nation's cities. The Spreading Hope Network has been an inspiring force in helping to launch numerous urban schools. On this episode of Basecamp Live, you'll be inspired by their vision and accomplishments in reaching the next generation no matter where you live. Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it Ancient Future Education for Raising the Next Generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Davies Owens here is always grateful that you've taken the time to listen. Special word of thanks to the folks at Union University and the Alliance Defending Freedom for their support of this episode. We are grateful for your partnership. As you're listening, I am grateful for you, the listener, taking time to be a part of this unique podcast. We've been doing this for many years, and I'm always blessed to get emails from you, the listener. So can't encourage you enough. Info at BasecampLive.com. Let me know what's on your mind. And certainly encourage others in your network to listen to Basecamp Live. We cover a lot of ground, as always, uh, from different angles, from what's happening in the culture to Parenting 101 to uh, Classical Christian 101 and 102. So let us know where you're listening from and what may be on your mind. In this particular episode, we are talking about the unique work that's going on through the Spreading Hope Network, and I have a real heart for the inner cities. I had some very early teenage ministry opportunities working in my hometown of Atlanta in Techwood Homes, which at the time was uh, and still is one of the country's oldest government housing projects. And I can certainly say the level of challenge is there in every single way that folks face who are living in those environments, much less trying to start and run classical Christian schools. But of course, as we know, this form of education is transformative, and truth, goodness, and beauty know no boundaries. And that's what is so exciting about this great work that is springing up. So if you've not had a chance to hear the episode um, that we did with Russ Gregg, who founded Hope Academy in the inner city of Minneapolis some 23, 24 years ago, that is certainly worth the time to listen if you're interested in this unique type of work. And Dan Olson has been right there with Russ through much of it, and Dan has uh, stepped into this executive director role of Spreading Hope, uh, where he's overseeing strategic vision and networking of urban Christian educators all around the country, helping them to lead and start these new schools. Dan is a very unique individual. He oversaw the development for years there at Hope Academy before moving into more of this national um, footprint that he has in, in supporting schools. He's also a writer. You get, you get to hear at the end of the episode him talk about a very unique book that he's written that reflects his incredible talents. He and his wife um, live in Minneapolis with their four children. He has an incredible heart for classical Christian education and the unique work in the inner cities. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dan Olson. Well, Dan Olson, welcome to Basecamp Live. Well, thank you so much, Davies, for having me on. I'm a, I'm a listener, and it's, a, it's an honor to be a guest. It's great. I love listeners that become guests, and so hopefully you'll keep listening after you've been a guest. We'll keep it going, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I probably won't listen to the episode that you have me on because it's kind of cringy to hear your own voice. Oh, you're sounding great, Dan. It's all good. Well, we've <laughs> been good. talking for a long time. We've known each other for a while. Excited to have you on. You definitely wear uh, many hats. We were just saying that um, you ought to put on your business card, uh, your your heart's desire, I guess, your passion in life, Christian formation in unlikely places. So um, talk a little bit. One of those, obviously, we're going to get into is the work you're doing with Spreading Hope and the rapid growth around the country, around the world of, of urban classical Christian schools. But kind of back us up for a second. Tell us, tell me your story. I want to hear a little bit about the Dan story. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, my journey into Christian education really started as a child. My parents uh, were like many people involved with Base Camp Live, I'm sure, and this kind of classical Christian renewal. My parents were part of helping get a small Christian school started in a small town in rural Minnesota, and I was uh, a student there. So my kindergarten through sixth grade years were in a very small 
uh, Bible believing, a wonderful Christian school setting. And I look back, uh, I still think back to my first grade teacher, Miss Moline, as a place where I felt like I really started to put my hope and trust in the Lord because of the kind of example that she was to me of a kind of humble hearted, you know, uh, teacher. And we learned a lot of scripture passages and all that. So that, that animates a lot of my own work, uh, mm-hmm. in the K-12 space. Uh, fast forward, I ended up getting a chance to, uh, you know, get a really wonderful education in kind of a Christian liberal arts setting, both at the high school and at the college level and, and at the seminary level. Um, and all of that, uh, inspired and kind of God used that to, um, to, to kind of give me um, a heart for kind of the Christian liberal arts tradition. And in 2006, I ended up uh, taking a job working with Russ Gregg at Hope Academy. I'd actually started uh, as a volunteer working at this inner city Christian school called Hope Academy that was serving about 70 kids at the time. I was a mentor to two boys whose dads were incarcerated and um, would do kind of weekly, you know, stuff with them and their mom was just desperate in needing a sort of male influence in their lives. And so I spent a lot of time with those boys and then ended up joining the staff team at Hope Academy. And for nine years was kind of Russ Gregg's right-hand man and just had such a passion to see kind of a classical Christian education made accessible and affordable for low-income inner city youth. And that was a very formative experience for me. I want to, yeah, I want to take a second and just um, hear a little bit kind of for folks that don't know about um, Hope Academy and kind of where that started out and where you were there for nine years. If you can tell um, just a little bit of that story to kind of give some background. So for for those of you that don't know, Russ Gregg has been a guest on your podcast, Davies, and and Russ Gregg in 1999, you know, quit his job and uh, laid the foundation to provide a remarkable God-centered education for his neighbor's children. He was living in a neighborhood called the Phillips neighborhood and kind of the inner city of Minneapolis. And at the time, um, the NAACP had sued the Minneapolis public schools for failure to serve the African-American community of our of our neighborhood. And so Russ Gregg kind of asked the question, what does it mean to love my neighbors as myself? And uh, he believed it was not just giving his neighbors 10% of the kind of education that he would like for his own children, but that if it's really true that uh, we're all made in the image of God and that every, that the, that just because someone lives in a particular zip code or has a particular income doesn't mean that they shouldn't have access to the very best education. And so I, uh, six years after Russ Gregg quit his job to start the school, I got a chance to, to join in that work for nine years. And, um, still to this day, I'm involved. I'm a member of the board of directors Yeah. and, uh, five years ago, got a chance to be a part of helping along with Russ kind of co-founding something called the spreading hope network to help people around the country get a chance to, um, learn from and, uh, hopefully be inspired by and, uh, start new schools uh, yeah. for God new God-centered schools for children of the city is what we call it. Uh, well, it, and what a refreshing vision, because again, I think that, it, although I think this is changing to some extent, but the clearly the historical stereotypical classical Christian school is a brick and mortar, five-day suburban, um, if, you know, it, it, and certainly in some cases, people see it even one layer, maybe more concerning that these are just for the wealthy kids or the white kids or the elite kids or whatever that may be. And again, the fact that classical Christian education is 100% for every every child made in the image of God anywhere on the face of the earth, we see that certainly internationally, but you guys are certainly helping to break that stereotype. And you're right, if folks didn't hear the interview with Russ Gregg, he goes into great detail about just the history of the school, and I've had the privilege of being on the property there, and it is uh, it is just so encouraging. So again, just for folks who don't know that story, I mean, just kind of in the last, is it 23, 24 years now? It's been, it's been like quarter of a century. And the number of students that come through, like graduation rates are just fantastic. And the way that the school actually impacts lives. Yeah, no, I mean, we have, we serve more than 600 students in grades K through 12. Um, I was actually just at Wheaton College in Illinois with one of our alums who's a senior at uh, Wheaton right now and is preparing for a uh, career probably in kind of admissions, enrollment, communications. He's kind of still figuring that out, but it was fun to, to see him. Yeah, no, that's... So it's been, a, it's been a wonderful journey at Hope, and we've helped get 13 schools started already. 
Um, most of these schools, we, we have a mantra. We say, start small, dream big, grow slow. Uh, Hope Academy started very, very small. And so most of the schools that we've helped get off the ground, you know, are serve right now between 20 and 250 students, but mm-hmm. all told, uh, we've helped 13 schools get started. There are 1,200 students right now enrolled in schools that otherwise uh, likely wouldn't be in, in classical Christian schools and under-resourced communities, uh, all the way from Cleveland to outside of Raleigh, North Carolina, down in Houston. Um, there are uh, schools like this popping up in major metropolitan areas left and right. And we entered into this fray. I mean, there are dozens, if not hundreds of schools already that I would describe as doing really quality uh, God-centered education that are serving what we call ACE students. It's academically disenfranchised, culturally diverse, and economically disadvantaged children with a remarkable, you know, liberal arts grounded Christian education. Yeah. And so there is a movement out there. So for those of you sitting in your car, you're kind of worried that the education your kids are getting is somehow, um, you know, you know, it may be that your own school feels too homogeneous and you wish it was more diverse, all of those things. Just know there are lots and lots of schools out there that reflect the kind of diversity of, of God's kingdom yeah. that, uh, that we want to celebrate and encourage. Well, that's an, I mean, that is a big spread to the 13 schools. And when, so Hope Academy there in Minneapolis got started almost quarter century ago. So how long is it? So have these 13 schools just, come online, if you will, uh, just incrementally over the years? Or has it been kind of yeah. a, a rush? Yeah, so how, how, that's a good question. How we work, uh, that, those are all schools that have started since Spreading Hope Network got founded. So we, the Spreading Hope Network was kind of a vision birthed out of Hope Academy. And the, the issue was that we had all these leaders from around the country wanting to learn from and, and visit Hope. And it was creating a lot of uh, burden on the leadership of the school to drop everything and and help these emerging leaders thinking about starting something new. So we we launched the Spreading Hope Network for two reasons. One is to ignite a movement of new God-centered schools for children of the city, but secondly, to help uh, kind of a little bit of a release valve on the pressure on the school. So whenever anybody contacts, you know, one of our principals or one of our teachers, they know that they can route that leader uh, to the Spreading Hope Network and we will help host those leaders on these visits. So we actually have five school visits that we do each year. They're two day, we call them plunges. We're trying to give people like a baptism into the mission and model (laughs) of what Hope Academy does. And you're hosted here in Minneapolis. We either put you up in a hotel or some people actually stay with Russ Gregg himself or with me. And we have between eight and 12 leaders at each of these plunges. One's in September, one's in October, one's in January, which is like our polar plunge when it's very, very cold. (laughs) And uh, very few people, when they come, do they think they want to start a school in Minneapolis uh, because of how cold and frigid it gets. Um, But we also do another one in May and in June. Wow! And so we've had more than 100 leaders over these last four years that have actually traveled to Minneapolis to come for these, uh, you know, two-day intensives. And it's from those leaders who actually come and visit us that we will select what we call our founders. Mm -hmm. So um, not everybody who comes has to be starting a school. You don't have to, you know, be committed to starting a new school. Many educational leaders are just wanting to visit another school and learn from their methods and models. And so we would love to have anybody and everyone come and kind of catch a vision for what God is doing um, in in Minneapolis, but for uh, catch a vision for what God could do in their community. Yeah. Well, we're going to, you know, talk later in the podcast about some of the challenges of of sort of contextualizing classical Christian education into the set, into the, you know, to an urban setting and, you know, in particular curriculum, which we hear a lot about with the old, the old dead white guys books and all of that kind of stuff. Um, we'll talk about that in a bit. And you've actually written a book that we're going to get into in just a second. But I'm, you know, just again, continue to tell these stories because it's just so encouraging that you think about the typical profile of a, of a, of a child there in Minneapolis and, you know, kind of what typically they would be offered in terms of educational opportunities. And now to come into Hope Academy, you're, you're walking into a world that it looks a lot like, you know, typical, uh, classical Christian school. I mean, uh, the uniforms, there's a house program, there's, uh, you know, a robust curriculum there. I mean, the, it seems like 
um, it works again in this context very, very well. And, and I love too, that not only your students are coming through this, but the parents are being impacted by it. So just talk a little bit about some of those distinctives in terms of how it works out. Yeah, I do think there's, um, are you, are you asking the question just like how, what are some of the ways in which Hope Academy is both similar and different? Yeah, that's a great, yeah. That a sort of traditional. Yeah, you should have asked the school. question. That was a better question. Yes. I think that's yeah. a better way to ask it because on the one hand, it's, well, it sounds like it's very similar. It is. On the other hand, there are some very distinct things that you guys do. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I think what we've tried to do is, is I think select and identify the things about what are, you know, the very, lots of the best practices that are coming out of the classical Christian renaissance um an example that you gave is this house system i mean it's interesting in urban education communities whether public or charter schools a lot of the teachers that we have that will apply to be teachers at hope will tell us that they feel like they're spending about 80 percent of their time just dealing with disciplinary matters and about 20 percent of their time teaching so obviously the class size issues being what they are in public education it can be a real challenge and oftentimes there's feelings that the leadership and administration don't really have the backs of the teachers. And so it can really create a sense of chaos and, and mistrust. Um, and another piece that's common in urban settings is that and I think is a real strength of the classical Christian movement is that oftentimes public uh, schools in the, the leadership and the teachers feel like they have to do an end run around parents that they if they feel like parent issues maybe are a problem, they feel like they have no leverage to do anything about that. So they just start trying to run after school programs or, you know, do things that are going to help, uh, you know, try to alleviate the issues that might be affecting learning for children. And at Hope, we have what we call our five core distinctives. And they're really common that you'd see in a classical Christian school. You know, Hope, our Hope of Hope Academy is God. That's number one, kind of a God-centered, remarkable education. Number two is we call discipline and high expectations so that there's not a suburban and, a, and an urban standard of education that all parents desire the very best education for their kids and all children have held to the highest standard really can uh, excel and thrive. And the third, that's really a, a marker of Christian education in general is parent involvement, that uh, parents are always the most important teacher in the lives of their children. And we at Hope and in the Spreading Hope Network schools, uh, we tend to recommend to all these school leaders trying to do urban you know, education that you are not the savior of these children. One, Jesus is the savior and their parents are a better teacher than you're ever gonna be. You know, Whether it's a, a single parent home or, uh, or the grandparents are raising these children, parents or children are going to learn well from their parents and or their guardians. And the school exists to come alongside parents to support them and equip them to be the kinds of parents that they yeah. uh, are meant to be. So we do a lot of strategies in these urban settings. We, we have a parent covenant parents are required to sign. Um, parents have to come to a parent teacher conferences. We do something called parent involvement day. It's like, instead of bringing your child to work day, it's bringing your parent to school day. And these are all things that are designed to really help sow seeds of, of accountability that we all need into the lives of families um, when sometimes they haven't seen that modeled in a way or they haven't felt yeah. like they're kind of raising their children in a community. So really parents oftentimes tell us that it feels like what Hope Academy is, is a family, Yeah, that it's a family. And I think uh, that's really, I think the ultimate problem that our, our communities, you know, whether urban or suburban are facing is this kind of radical individualism, the breakdown of um, families and uh, the lack of, you know, I think kinship intensity is one way that sociologists mm. describe it, that there's like a, there's like a breakdown in the ways in which people have parents and grandparents and cousins that are really invested in the lives of, of our children. So yeah. those are all things that our model, we feel like is our art is designed to address. You guys, uh, well, and we're going to take a quick break when we come back. I want you to unpack a little bit more, some of the unique things you do, especially around parent partnerships. And, and for honestly, for many of the non-urban schools, I think we're a little bit envious of the degree to which you actually get engagement and 
um, in partnership, which um, almost seems like it'd be the other way around, but you guys have done such a good job of just stating the vision and the expectations and um, and what the graduation rates are like 95, 96% plus. I mean, it's pretty stellar. I mean, at the end of the day, it works. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all of our kids get into, I mean, almost all except for a couple have gotten into two and four year schools. We've had, we've given away, yeah. you know, or colleges and universities have given away you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars wow. in scholarships wow. to the students that have come in. How does that compare so to just really surrounding kind of public schools? What does that typically look like as a comparison? Yeah, I mean, I I, I would not want to say anything negative about sure. the, the schools surrounding us. And I think there is a, a sense in which Hope Academy um, is a part of an urban education ecosystem. Yeah. And we want, I mean, from our vantage point, we want um, all all school leaders, all students involved in schools to thrive, regardless of the school type. Um, it is the case that the graduation rates in general of uh, black and brown students in our community um, tend to be uh, less than 50% in terms yeah. of those that graduate within four years. Um, and, you know, the students that we serve at Hope, um, you know, those that come in ninth grade, you know, in four years, it's about 98% will graduate from high school. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, a small knit, tight knit community. Um, and, uh, and, and the, the, the support that we're providing and equipping uh, parents to provide. Um, so, but we feel like we're, we're, we're one small piece of a much, a much, uh, we're one small drop in the bucket. So we want right. all, all schools and all. Um, yeah, no, I, and I hear that. And I think thrive. it's definitely not a, us versus them. I think it's more just here's the scope of the challenge and here's the successes you guys are having. And here's some of the, um, some of the means that you've had to implement, which again are transferable to, I think to all of us as parents, as educators across the movement, but distinctly so within, within the urban setting. So why don't we take a quick break, Dan, we'll come back. I want to unpack a little bit more about some of the unique, um, cultural expectations of your school that you've created that have led to such amazing success. So we'll be right back. Well, Dan, welcome back to Basecamp. As we think about the contextualizing of classical Christian education in an urban setting, it, it seems like there would be, um, you know, all kinds of barriers, barriers and challenges. You know, we were just talking before the break about when you when you bring children into the building who are coming out of, um, you know, broken homes. And by the way, there, there are so many homes that are broken in every context these days, but just brokenness in the sense of kids haven't even had breakfast yet and you've got to figure out how to set up basically a commercial kitchen to feed them breakfast and now they show up in the classroom and maybe they don't have the full support that um, you would hope for the home. Talk more about just how do you think in this kind of surrogating role of coming alongside families and encouraging them and equipping them, um, what does that what does that look like? Because I think there's a lot of things that urban and suburban schools could learn from you. Yeah, I mean, I do think that the role of uh, a, a very high quality classroom can play in providing the sort of structures and supports necessary to really help students be able to thrive is, is really important. It's hard. I mean, the amount of hours that are spent in a classroom in a given year, I mean, six hours every day for 180 days, um, that's a lot of time. And in our setting where we, we do ask parents to sign this parent covenant and they are essentially agreeing to, uh, to some forms of mutual accountability. So the school agree, makes a lot of promises to the families and the families agree that they're gonna be um, held to uh, some similar fairly high standards. So we do require, as I mentioned before the break, you know, the parent-teacher conferences, we require these, um, we do actually, the most kind of radical thing that we do that's really um, rarely done, and I think it should be replicated in a lot of schools, is we do a home visit with every single family in our school. The teachers will go out oftentimes two by twos into the apartments or homes of every single family. And the purpose of those home visits is just to sort of build a relationship with the family. Um, oftentimes families in urban settings maybe didn't have a positive experience themselves in school. And there can be kind of an oppositional attitude towards a school and the home visit. It's not like a social service kind of visit. It's just an opportunity to build relationship and for the teachers to get a chance to pray. It's funny People, uh, my wife is a psychologist, and when she described this to her supervisor at a previous job, he said, "Oh, that's 
that's a model that used to be called the missionary model. And that's a good way to think of it. That's essentially what we're doing. It's we're, we're essentially contextualizing it's, it's, it's teachers and schools and, and teachers seeing them, seeing their lives as, as on mission yeah. is building deep relationships with families. Um, and so, you know, it is the case that the families we serve oftentimes have more, maybe both internal and exterior external, um, barriers and maybe, you know, a deficit of some resources. We also do a kind of an interesting thing with families is um, we actually have a parent report card. So all the things that we require of them, the home visits, the parent teacher conferences, those, um, uh, those parent involvement days, uh, as well as a family fair share tuition. So families do pay us on a sliding fee scale. They're held accountable for a proportion of the fee and they are given a kind of report card every year. And then there's a, every spring we do a new uh, fair share tuition conference where the family's fees are readjusted based on their income. The median household income of the families we serve at Hope is between 35 and $40,000 a year. And in Minneapolis, that doesn't get very far. So the families that pay the minimum amount at Hope is about $600 a month. And that's a family share but that's a very large proportion of their household income. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and if families can't make that work due to a uh, loss of job or a change in family situation, uh, we allow them to kind of work it off and come in and serve around the school or in the lunchroom where they can sort of be seen by their kids and help out around the school, which is a common thing already at Hope where we have parents yeah. in the hallway. So it doesn't feel like it's a, uh, like they're getting chastised or punished to come right. in and work. They're actually serving within the school and they're, which is a, a wonderful opportunity to be present with their children. Well, and I think that's, again, the spirit of all of our schools in Loco Parentis. We are doing this in partnership. And I think schools, honestly, that are smaller, that are kind of maybe more in startup world or they're still under the 150 students. There's just a natural overlap. You, you Parents are in the building more, they volunteer more. And then I think as you get mm-hmm. to be a more, sizable school and there's more income and you've had more employees and all of a sudden it gets real easy to have that distance. But I, I, I think again, some of the secret sauce, if you will, that I'm hearing there at Hope Academy is something I think all of our schools should consider. I mean, I remember years ago when I was had a, had a school, one of the things I would do was actually go and visit in the home of every new family um, and mm-hmm. bring them coffee. And it was, it was a huge undertaking to drive across town and knock, you know, and set up the appointment. But the deposits that I was described as the deposits I made in that relational capital that, you know, six months later when they're upset because Johnny's struggling because of this thing, it's a lot more tempered because we know each other. And I think it sounds like that's a lot of what's happening. It's just, this is a deeply relational journey that you've created for, for parents and teachers. Yeah. And I think that for anybody listening, who's, uh, a head of school or a teacher in a classroom. I do think that all of us have had, you know, the last two and a half years have been kind of traumatizing. And I do think that going back to those first principles of realizing that, uh, you know, love of neighbor and, and, and caring well, uh, humbly for, uh, for a, a future parent or a current parent really starts with relationship yeah, and, uh, and doing everything you can to just build a meaningful yeah. partnership with the family. Well, and that's it. In, in urban communities, it, it's oftentimes across cultural and ethnic and socioeconomic lines. And so it can be more complicated, but, mm-hmm. but the anthropological constant is that we're all image bearers and there's usually a linguistic barrier in the Hispanic and some of the immigrant communities. Sure. And so we have to, there's translator issues that yeah. we need to work with, but, um, but outside of those complications, um, there, you know, love in any language, you know, straight from the heart pulls us all together, never yeah. apart. Well, that's that's right. how the old song goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, the, the most, most parents will quickly, uh, um, become supportive if you are coming at it from the standpoint of I'm here for the best interest of your child. I mean, I think that's what yeah. we all we all care about deeply. But we're going to take a break here in just a second. I, before we do, just to kind of tee things up, I want to come back after the break and explore this idea of what are some of the other um, kind of barriers or challenges that you all are experiencing acutely in the urban environment, but I think are increasingly happening in the suburban environment, in particular things like, again, just as, as the culture heats up, as people become more um, maybe um, identity oriented and sort of who they are based on their 
national origin or their race or their sexuality or all that, it seems like that even leeches into a lot of our schools where now all of a sudden they show up and we're all about classical Christian education with, you know, ancient literature and, and a lot of kind of cultural narrow, a more narrow cultural presentation. So, you know, how does that work out? Because I think what you guys have figured out there um, is also relevant for where we are here in our, in many, again, I'm, I'm grateful for all of our schools and all these contacts, but I think we're all learning these things together. So uh, we're going to take a quick break there. Does that sound good? Sounds great. All Sounds right. great. We'll Looking be right back and jump on that issue. Thanks. It's time for another quick Classical Christian Q&A with Dr. Tim Dernlin. So Tim, our question today is, why is art a required subject in classical Christian schools? Our amazing creator, God, is the creator of all things and the ultimate inspiration and source of what it means to create true, good, and beautiful art. So in, in teaching art, we're learning about beauty but we're also understanding how we can reflect God and his, um, his uh, creativity as he's wired us. Art classes um, teach students to cultivate these uh, aesthetic talents and understanding as they reflect God. And as they're aware of these things, it helps them to live a more full and joyful life because there's so much more that they can uh, appreciate in life. Well, and again, it's not, for many of us, perhaps art was like right there next to recess. Like you had the real school and then you did art over, you know, (laughs) at fifth period. And that was like when you finally got to let, you know, let your hair down a little bit. So, but it's not, it's literally a critical part of the educational process in classical Christian schools. Yeah. It's uh, and then it spills over into understanding the uh, art of literature, the art of um, architecture, all kinds yeah. of uh, beautiful things. Well, in schools that use kind of the Charlotte Mason a technique of picture studies, I love this. They're literally looking at the art and then working on uh, being able to habit of attention, saying back the details of the art. So you see our students literally understanding how to, to look at art in the in the right way, not just glance over it and and um, and miss the deeper parts, uh, which is, again, is not just teaching them the, the artistic part of it, but the attention part of it. So it's lots of elements. Sure. Stopping and contemplating and gazing at art is, uh, is helping us cultivate that, uh, that scole education as well. Just, just really appreciating yeah. it. So, yeah. so much goes into it, right, Davies? Yeah. It's always fun when our classical ki- Christian kids go to people's houses that do have art books out and they actually know the art, um, so it's you've, you've, we've cultivated an appetite for the true good and beautiful when you see that happening. All right. Thanks so much, Dr. Tim. Check out Dr. Dernlin's book on 100 questions on classical Christian education. Got a question for him to answer on Basecamp Live? Send the question to info at Basecamp Live or leave us a message by voice or text on the Basecamp hotline, 833-595-2929. That's 833-595-2929. We look forward to hearing from you. So Dan, right before the break, we were just talking about the uh, ever-changing world in which classical Christian education is trying to live out faithfully. There seems to be more than ever a lot of uh, pressure from the broader culture that kind of bleeds into our schools. Certainly a lot of folks um, in the broader culture that see themselves more based on their identity, personal identities and backgrounds than and then to try to fall into a tradition or into alignment with the great works, uh, so to speak, could be could be challenging. How does that work out? I think that that problem would be even more acute in an urban school. Yeah, I do think we are. I mean, it's it's true that this essentialization of secondary identities, you know, whether it's ethnicity or sexuality or kind of political tribe, uh, I think we're kind of in this context of, you know, people call it you know, tribal tribalism or whatever. Um, I think I see those as all symptoms of, you know, the, you know, the broader, uh, you know, essentially casting off of the, the core of our, of classical Christian education that happened a lot, much longer ago, you know, C.S. Lewis called it the poison of subjectivism in his mm-hmm. abolition of man. And I, we really see what we're doing at Hope Academy is holding up this primary identity as image bearers of God. We're not, and I think it. What what's interesting at a place like Hope is it's been 
a healthy process of realizing that we aren't trying to put forward a sort of uh, white business class <laughs> culture, which I do think there happens to be a sort of white business class culture. Instead, we're actually wanting to put forward a kingdom culture, like, uh, and that's grounded in uh, Christ and his kingdom. It's grounded in, um, you know, Christ's call to love the least of these. And so that it's the, it's Christian virtue grounded in, you know, truth, goodness, and beauty, but also faith, hope, and love and, yeah. and humility. And so I think when you put those things forward and when the word of God becomes your primary anchor, what we found is, uh, you know, the African-American community, the Hispanic community, the immigrant, immigrant community, mo so many of the immigrants coming to America are coming from countries in West Africa or Korea, right? And, or in um, Asia, where there's actually fairly large communities of Christian faithfulness. And these actually are kind of infusing, I think, a post-Christian America with a kind of retrieving, um, you know, I think what uh, many people are calling you know, kind of resilient Christianity. Hmm. Uh, you know, if you look at the resilient disciples based on all the demographic data, there's way a higher quantity of resilient disciple followers of Christ in, in African nations than, the, than it is here in, in America. And yeah. so when those, when those families are moving to America due to complicated, you know, displacement issues and they end up getting enrolled in our school, what an incredible blessing that they are wanting to reinforce these, these primary values that are mm. grounded in our, our, uh, yeah. our gospel culture. And so that's, I think the real, the real opportunity that, we see in the American setting right now mm. is there is from every tongue, tribe, nation, and peoples, there is communities kind of wanting to flood into this country that the very top choice of school type that they would prefer are, you know, yeah. liberal arts, Christian schools that are going to be pointing their children yeah. to God. And that's, I think, um, an opportunity. If you're out there listening to this and you want to help start a new God-centered school for children in the city, wow, um, what an opportunity because there's so many leaders that are fed up with being in a kind of a secular environment. There's so many families that are wanting to find a new type of school where they can have their children grounded in the fear and instruction of the Lord. Um, so we'd love to host you here in Minneapolis. Yeah, and, no, I, uh, and I can't give you get a chance to, to see firsthand what that kind of school might be. And I would certainly encourage anybody listening, if you can get make your way to Minneapolis or presumably any of these 13 other um, schools that are in the lar larger network. I mean, it is a beautiful and encouraging experience to see what God's doing. And, and I love, as you described that, that many of folks are coming from the ends of the earth back to America bringing high expectations and it's kind of counter to what kind of your mainstream media might lead you to believe about kind of the, the school world today, but schools that stand for truth and hold on to things that are timeless and beautiful are actually attractive to people. So um, that makes sense at the same time, Dan, and maybe kind of shift to some of the work you're doing in this unique book you've written. I mean, obviously um, we're, we're part of things that are timeless, but we're also trying to be, um, you know, attending to the, the moment in which God's called us to serve. And so, you know, I think there's a much longer conversation around the, the canon of Western tradition and the books that we're putting before our students. And can we add anything that's maybe, um, you know, a little bit more relevant to maybe their, their background and their journey without in any way compromising the great, uh, the great books as we have them currently identified. So how do you, do you guys make some adjustments to some of the reading material, just given the context of the different students? Well, there is a lot of uh, intentionality at Hope to ensure that we're celebrating, especially heroes of the faith that are from, you know, the African-American community, the Hispanic community, the Native American community. And there are lots of those figures and voices. Um, I think, interestingly, you know, I think the ancient world, I think oftentimes people view the ancient world through kind of a, a, a kind of an enlightenment lens. And I think it is true uh, interestingly, that the ancient world was much more uh, culturally and ethnically, you know, diverse than people think about as a, you know, there, there was the Egyptian yeah. infusion and there was so many different um, people groups that were all celebrated and there wasn't, you know, some one particular homogenous uh, community that was engaging in, yeah. in, uh, in, in education. Angel Adams Parham and Anika Prather's book that just came out on the black intellectual tradition does a much better job than I can do kind of retrieving um, the sort of ways in which, you know, 
um, you know, the African heritage that, uh, you know, Moses himself was educated in all the wisdom and, and, you know, wisdom of the Egyptians. Um, and, uh, there are lots of figures and heroes that I think are important for, you know, especially if someone listening is, has an African-American or Hispanic background and they, they sort of have that knee jerk response to some of the documents and, or, you know, book covers of things that they might find in, in some of their schools, you know, figures like Anna Julia Cooper, Marva Collins, W.E.D. Du Bois, um, so many figures uh, from especially the 19th and 20th century and the African-American heritage, um, yeah, you know, there's... were really educated in the <clears throat> classic liberal life tradition, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, so it isn't, uh, it isn't the dead white folk, you know, <laughs> education. It's a, it's a form of education that yeah. uh, goes way back to Augustine and well, and again, what I loved, I mean, you're you're having to get to these questions maybe faster because you're in an urban setting. So it's forcing at a lot of the more suburban schools are maybe starting to feel that pressure and not knowing where to go for answers. So, again, I, I think obviously just simply hearing what's on the curriculum list might be helpful as a way of, um, again, this sounds, this is the risk. And what's frustrating about these conversations is that people are quick to go, oh, you guys are just trying to do the woke and be, thing and be pursue the, you know, the pressures of the day. Like, no, I think that's, that's part of what God's, if you take classical Christian around the world, if you're a good missionologist, you're going to have to think a little bit about some of the context in which you're taking and building that school or launching that church. And I mean, that's, I think, pretty reasonable kind of thing to consider. But so Dan, we've been talking about just the, uh, the, the need for great books here. And we've got, we've got a historic, a historical list of great books, obviously classical Christian schools. And there's even more, I think, as we look kind of internationally, of what God's been doing around the world, but there's also folks writing books like yourself. Um, and I was excited to hear about this very creative new book that you have uh, just written called, Oh, the treasures you'll love. It's, it, it's kind of in the vein of, of a Dr. Seuss book. Um, is that, is that a fair comparison? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's called, Oh, the treasures you'll know is the title. And it's actually a parody of Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You'll Go, which you, I don't know if you've ever come across yeah. that. It's certainly not a book that would be considered part of the Western canon in the classical sense, but certainly in the vein of 20th century children's literature and graduation books, it's probably the most popular uh, resource given. Yeah. Um, well, and I'm... so, uh, it, yeah, it's a it's a meant to be a kind of a, a Dr. Seuss meets, uh, you know, John Bunyan, sort of a Pilgrim's Progress edition of of Dr. Seuss. It's quite classic. a mashup there. I'm trying to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's and it's um, you know again speaking of kind of books that are quickly being discarded these days. I mean, Pearl Dr. Seuss's books of late have kind of gotten uh, marginalized too because of uh, various uh, silly arguments, I suppose. But and here you are well, writing yeah, I mean, I in that vein. But what, yeah. yeah. Interestingly, on that, I mean, is a couple of his books were you know taken off shelves due to you know, culturally insensitive illustrations is our, some of the rationale. Um, ironically, you know, I think the, one of the key American values that nobody wants to criticize is kind of the meritocracy and the pursuit of fame and glory. And I, you know, I, I think, Oh, the places you'll go, even though I, I love Dr. Seuss's, you know, skill with whimsy. And I also, you know, don't think, Oh, the places you'll go is, is a extraordinarily dangerous book in any way, but Philip Reef uh, was an American sociologist and cultural critic who coined the phrase "a death work," and he called it, it was a it was a work that presents what he called an all-out assault upon something vital to the established culture, hmm. and sort of a the American meritocracy. I do think does hold up a kind of pride in um, you know human ability to um, control. Uh, you know, the created order that I think does cut against, I think, Christian concerns regarding humility and the glory of God. And ultimately, you know, kind of the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, not to necessarily be a CEO and pursue fame and glory. Right. And so I really wrote the book as a kind of a subversive twist on Seuss's book (laughs) and kind of a satire takedown Mm -hmm. of Seuss. Um, and it was, and maybe best to see it as an homage to Dr. Seuss, but also an homage to a Bunyan, sort of a Christian allegory yeah. of the journey of the race of faith. 
Um, and the kind of tagline in my mind of the book is that the, the graduation that matters most is to glory that we're all in this race of faith and, uh, and we're all going to be sitting before the, the judgment seat of Christ. And, uh, you know, the, the overarching anchor, I, I remember I, the idea for the book was inspired by two things. It was David Brooks's the road to character where he actually has, does kind of a Dr. Seuss takedown. But secondly, I was on a spiritual retreat reading Matthew 25, 31 through 46. It's the famous, you know, sheep and the goats parable. And I'm just going to read a few verses here. And I think it does kind of really sit and hit your heart. Jesus says this, that when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, those are the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And then Jesus says this, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Now the, the passage goes on. It's a famous passage, but the key question, I think that even those involved in classical Christian education need to be asking is, are we training up children and training up kingdom citizens that are going to be living lives of that kind of self sacrifice mm -hmm. and self forgetfulness, where they're going to be pouring out their lives for the flourishing of their neighbor's glory. And I think, you know, again, to have a more winsome, you know, parody as you've made here to, to just provoke conversation. I, you know, I love the idea of the sheep and the goats and the goats are, is it in who, who caresville? I mean, it sounds like our modern world, who caresville? Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty much where the modern world is right now. And that's where all the goats are hanging out. So I think, yeah, the kind of this theme fits very well to where kind of our cultural moment is. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the, the point of the, I think the, what I would say is I think, and I think the Christian church in particular experiences this as well. I think the old resources that are present all going way back to the origins of the church is, I mean, the, the scriptures are just a call to perseverance. And I think we do live in a time where there is a lot of abundance and there's lots of affluence you know, people call it affluenza or whatever, but uh, the book, I really wrote it as a call kind of a whimsical fun call of the pursuit of the eternal rewards that are promised um, in the scriptures. It's the kind of the thing that the main character is, is kind of journeying towards are the, the treasures of the five crowns um, that Paul talks about, the, the crown of life, the crown of eternity, the crown of glory, the crown of righteousness, and the crown of rejoicing. And on his journey, the pilgrim is trying to avoid, you know, the deadly dead ends. And it's mostly the seven deadly sins and, the, and other kinds of vices that are part of kind of living in the state of grace as opposed to the, or the state of nature as opposed to the state of grace. So it's a little bit of this a deep Christian allegory if you look at the pictures and the words, but it's meant to be written at a simple level that a child, you know, reading it with their parent would be able to point at pictures and enjoy the, the story, but that for somebody who may, you know, be a high school senior or a college graduate would still get some, some spiritual wisdom so and nourishment out of the book as well. Yeah. So this isn't just a green, green eggs and ham kind of audience. This sounds like yeah, a, lot, no, a much broader right. audience. It sounds like, yeah. I, my first, the first edition, I went to seminary and my, 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 my wife told me that the first edition read like kind of a little mini systematic theology. <laughs> and so in some ways it was a little too dense. Okay. But through the help of people that are better writers than me, they helped me simplify my language. So it's a, yeah, it was kind of a labor of love. And I was surprised when 10 of those publishing contacted me last year, I had actually kind of published an edition of this three years ago, Yeah, just on my own as sort of a, a self-published thing. And they contacted us and they said, we'd like to make this more widely available to the broader that's, church. That's universal. Amazing, so that was a real honor. So have, has the, uh, Hope Academy, uh, and, and broader network had the opportunity to, to use the book in any. Yeah. School I mean, I, I always, I, I bring it along when we're doing trainings with our, like I was just in a, 
I was just in Kenosha, Wisconsin. There's a new school there called Kenosha Classical Academy that's opening up this year right now for the first time. They've got 60 kids in grades pre-K to two. And I wow. brought eight copies to kind of give to the teachers so that they <laughs> could use it as a read aloud. You know, that's kind yeah. of, a, yeah, that's it's, great. It, you know, you're kind of pleased. It is the lower school principal at Hope Academy has given it out to the kindergarten okay. graduates okay. the last couple of years. So it's been sweet. Well, I'm sure many of those, uh, those are listening, running our school libraries and others are always looking for uh, new, new literature to add that might uh, help provoke these bigger conversations, but do so in a very um, attractive and appealing way. So thanks for making that book possible. Is this going to be a, are you going to go the full Seuss route? Is this going to be kind of a, a multiple books to come and re, you should redo all of them? It sounds like so. <laughs> well, no, I, <laughs> I do think that parody might be, uh-huh. uh, I have signed a, a kind of another, a, the, the second book that will be coming out in probably a year and a half. It's not kind of a satire of a Seuss book, but it is a little bit of an homage to another okay. kind of classic. <laughs> yeah. It's called the runaway sheep. It okay. is a children's book. Okay. If you've ever read the runaway bunny yeah it's a little bit of a okay of a of an homage to the runaway bunny okay so that one will be coming out in a couple well, of years got, so. well excellent dan well i'm it's so good to talk to you i know never enough time for all these things but for folks who are listening that want to know more about hope academy about the spreading hope network and about your book where do we find all these wonderful things yeah well spreading hope network is the spreading hope network.org i would encourage people to go on there if you want to come take a plunge there's a there's a link that says take the plunge and there's you, know, you can find the dates for when our upcoming school visits are. We'd love to have, we still have seats available at all of them. Wow. Um, the book you can look up, it's Oh, the Treasures You'll Know. If you go to 10 of those publishing, it, I think it should be on the website and you'll find it there. You can order it at any, wherever books are available, Great. I guess. And um, and finally, I didn't talk much about this. I, I also am yeah. involved in, in a center for Christian studies at the University of Minnesota called Anselm House. We're like a Christian college in a food truck. <laughs> that's the that's the kind of that's the sort of metaphor that we like to use. But um, if you'd like to learn more about yeah about how to do Christian education in an unlikely setting at the higher education level, I'd encourage you to go to the Consortium of Christian Study Centers and learn how you could uh, do something like that there. Well, so that that is a uh, you, you definitely as we began talking about you 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 pursue Christian formation in many unlikely places, and you've been very successful, Dan. So it's great to hear the diverse diverse settings and opportunities. And again, thank you for your time. It's great talking. Well, I, I like to, I like to quote GK Chesterton who said that we live in a day when pursuing virtue has all the exhilaration of a vice. <laughs> That's a good word. So, well, so I would encourage everybody to do the same. It sounds great, Dan. Well, again, thanks so much for listening to Basecamp and thanks for being on it today. Sure. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Davey. So good to be together. Hey there, Basecamp Live listeners. This is Davy's daughter, Hannah, here. And I want to congratulate this amazing podcast on almost five years of incredible content, enriching interviews, and over 200 episodes. So that has brought so much encouragement to people. And thank you for being a part of that. Thank you for supporting this message, this mission. And there are a couple ways that you can help in sharing that message. First of all, please leave a five-star review on whatever app you are using to listen to this podcast. You can also share it with a friend. That's a great way to get the message out about Basecamp Live. And of course, share your story with us at info at basecamplive.com. There we'll also answer all your questions and more. And any topics that you'd like to hear too, please send them there to info at basecamplive.com. We'll see you next week, everybody. Thanks.